Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered. My name is Ollie Dugmore. In 1986, the Green Party's headquarters were, locate, were located in a shoebox room behind a Chinese restaurant on Clapham High Street. It was there that my guest joined the party that she would go on to lead. As the party's highest profile member, she would serve as a member of the European Parliament and then, in 2010, she would become the Greens' first and only MP. A dedicated activist as well as politician, her achievements include being the three-time winner of Politician of the Year at the Observer's Ethical Awards, championing animal, worker, LGBTQ+, and women's rights, as well as a couple of arrests. But in June this year, she announced that she would not be seeking re-election to the House of Commons. My guest today is Dr. Caroline Lucas. Hello. Hi, Caroline. How Hi. are you? I'm really good, thank you. Did I do an okay job with the introduction? It's all right? Uh, it was very, very flattering. Thank you. Yes? You could have put the acquittals as well as the arrests. That's Sorry. Important. It's very important, yeah. 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 How are you? You okay? Yes, thank you. Good. Yes. Glad to have you with us. Um, we like to begin at the beginning with this format. Um, I think it's best. So... Talking about you as a, a child and sort of your route towards politics, I read that both of your parents were conservative voters. Mm-hmm. How does the child of two Tory voters end up becoming, <laughs> you know, a Green MP, leader of the Greens? What's that process like? So the uh, the route is through um, meeting some really amazing people at various points in my life. I, I sort of feel that you can really kind of plot back where where I met someone like there was a wonderful friend at school called Rachel, um, who just introduced me to the whole world of books because there weren't very many books at home either. Um, and going on to university and and finding soulmates there. So yes, my political background certainly didn't happen at home. And to some extent, it was a bit of a revolt against the, the Daily Mail, which was uh, on the breakfast table every morning. Um, but uh, it, it, it's, yeah. Was it a conscious political rebellion or was it, do you think perhaps, could you boil it down to being a teenager and that, you know, if they were green, you would have become a Tory because you were rebelling against them rather than necessarily the brand of politics? No, I, th- I think there was something that was pretty disgusting that I could um, 
uh, identify in the Daily Mail, not in my parents, I hasten to say, <laughs> but in the Daily Mail yep. from an early age. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, just in the way in which they covered things like the miners' strikes or or Falklands War or, or all of these things were, were kind of meaningful moments where you just realise there is a gulf of, 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 of values between what they stand for and, and what felt right to me. So mm-hmm. I, I don't think that had they both been green, I would have ended up, you know, with Nigel Farage or, or anywhere else. <laughs> you mentioned a couple of um, political talking points there, but what about environmental politics and green politics? Was that, when did you start to sort of become conscious of and engage with those aspects? I think it was a bit later, actually, because for me, it was anti-nuclear that was the big right. mobiliser. Um, sort of casting your mind back to the early 80s, it really was a time when it felt like um, a, a nuclear war um, or certainly a nuclear accident was was entirely likely. Um, and so it was that um, big movement against the US bases. And so I visited Greenham. I didn't ever stay there, but I visited quite a lot. And then also up in Molesworth and some other places where there was a real focus on on trying to get the uh, the, the nuclear weapons out of out of the UK. Um, and it was through that then that I uh, was reading, for example, the Jonathan Porritt book, The Seeing Green, that was that real light bulb moment for me where I suddenly realised the things that I was concerned about, whether that was destruction of the environment or uh, nuclear war or um, feminism, were kind of brought together in a kind of political package. And, and what Jonathan Porritt does in that book, I think, is to demonstrate that there's you know, a set of, of, of driving values and an economic system that underpins all of those things. And that if we start tackling the, the causes, not just the symptoms, we'd have a better chance of, of being able to have a different kind of, different kind of politics, a different kind of world. And to focus on those sort of the activist side of what you were just talking about there, the peace camps, etc. Could you talk a little bit about how you rationalise direct action and where direct action sits in relation to you? Because obviously in a lot of those instances, we're talking about, um, you know, cutting the fences of military bases, deliberate trespass, etc. How central is direct action to you and your political journey? I think direct action is, is is pretty central, actually, which is not to say that it's something that um, I undertake lightly. But I think in so many ways, our political system is failing us that it's not um, it's not a wild leap to start thinking that there may well be a need for extra parliamentary ways, certainly to to try to address some of these issues. And when it came, for example, to the most recent arrest, that was for. Um, protesting outside the fracking site in Bolcom. Um and, and I did think very long and hard about that because obviously as an MP, I am in an incredibly privileged position. I can speak to the Prime Minister at PMQs, Prime Minister's questions. I can put down parliamentary questions and amendments and early day motions. And I did all of those things on fracking um, to, to no avail. So I did think about it, but there was a real pressure as well from my constituency, which isn't so far from from Balkan, where many people were writing in and saying, as I believe too, that fracking was really the front line of the of the climate battle, and that if fracking went ahead in Balkan, then that would give the green light for more fracking across the country. So it did feel a real line that that was very dangerous to cross, and that if we really were in the UK going to be extracting yet more fossil fuels, then that was sending an, an immensely damaging signal to lots of other countries as well as being damaging in itself from a climate perspective. So it felt to me that it was legitimate to take that peaceful direct action. Could we explore that comparison between direct action and, you know, participation, well, particularly, you know, participation in the kind you have with our representative democracy? Because you have a very unique perspective, right, as someone who's 
not only an MP, but also someone who's actually prepared to participate in protest politics and civil disobedience campaigns. You know, I think not actually that many MPs have possibly even attended a protest, let alone decided to take direct action. So your perspective is, is a relatively unique one. Could you tell me about how you see the two stacking up and particularly sort of within the context of parliamentary procedure and your ability to influence events here versus being able to influence them mm. on picket lines on the streets? I mean, I've thought a lot about how does change happen, you know, because um, being within the green tradition, we want change to happen pretty, pretty damn fast. And it's not. Um, and so I guess I've I've come to the not entirely original conclusion that it is obviously a, a combination of having that pressure on the outside, but also having some good people on the inside who are prepared to change the political frameworks and, the, and, and, and so forth to to enable better policies to be put in place. So it feels that that the direct action, if you like, is is sometimes necessary, but not sufficient. You do need in a democracy to have people on the inside who can then put in place the the enabling policy framework that would mean, for example, that that we take a decision for a moratorium on fracking or better still a ban uh, and that we do put real money into renewables and energy efficiency and that we don't uh, extract more oil and gas from the North Sea. So definitely we need that engagement with the political process. But I think maybe particularly in this country where we've got a political system that is so unrepresentative of the people it's meant to be acting on behalf of, then perhaps there's an even greater argument for saying, hang on a minute, you know, this system just isn't working. And we mm. know that it isn't because first past the post means that again and again, we have a government that is actually elected by a minority of people in the country. They do not represent a majority, which is just bonkers. <laughs> And for as long as that exists, honestly, I, I feel there's an even stronger case for saying that there is a, a requirement almost to take peaceful direct action, to, to push the political process in a way that isn't breaking the bigger international laws, which are about, you know, keeping to our, our international treaties when it comes to staying below 1.5 degrees of warming or whether it's about, you know, protecting citizens from from the very real and, and, and hugely appalling consequences of runaway climate change. Do you know what? I hadn't even considered the sort of the breaking of the law for political purposes, you know, within a protest sense and the kind of the pearl clutching and the high and mighty and how dare you and, you know, you'll be arrested, you whatever it is, obstructing a highway, take your pick versus the government's actual increasing willingness to break international law, either in a specific and limited way when it comes Absolutely. to... Absolutely. That's all right then. Brexit. Yeah, well, no, exactly. Or, you know, yeah. um, leaving the, the, the ECHR, right, which yeah. has very direct consequences for the Good Friday Agreement, uh, yeah. the, the EU withdrawal agreement. Yeah. That's fine. But if you want to lock onto something to protest fracking... Well, yep. dearie me, you're a crusty, yeah. you're a problem. and yeah. You're in court. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I mean, there is a, a whole wealth of irony, really, about this particular government, I think, in the sense that they have such a crackdown on, on popular protest or even, you know, just simply taking part in a demonstration mm. now becomes something that is deeply suspect and, and you could well be uh, arrested simply for potentially being on your way to potentially <laughs> taking part in a potential protest mm -hmm. versus as you've so eloquently said, a government that is running roughshod over international law practically every day of the week. I mean, even just this week now, we're talking about, you know, whether or not the government's going to try to, uh, you know, take us out of the European Court of Human Rights and, and what its Rwanda programme is going to do. And, you know, there, there's no end of ways 
that the government is playing fast and loose with with international law. Mm, yeah, it doesn't matter that the Supreme Court's come to a decision. Let's just send the planes anyway, as the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party exactly. said. Um, <laughs> Caroline, could you talk a little bit about the role of women in these campaigns specifically, not just um, nuclear disarmament, but also the growing way in which we're seeing more female leaders in the campaign for climate justice? I mean, it's certainly something that's happening. I mean, I think that is objectively real and, and the case. And I think when you start thinking about you know, who some of the figureheads are, then they tend to be women not exclusively obviously but they tend to be and then and then so many of the of the people who are you know the the organizers on the ground who who aren't necessarily the ones getting the the uh, the headlines are are also women and so then yes you begin to ask yourself why is that and i, I don't have a neat um uh conclusion as to, as to why that is one could surmise that um perhaps it is the case that um that that um, there's a connection between the kind of exploitation of women and the exploitation of the planet and the exploitation of of people from ethnic minorities and the global south and to the extent that environmental injustice and climate injustice is linked to social injustice is linked to gender and racial racial injustice then then all of those things are connected and perhaps from that kind of more intersectional perspective maybe that's more likely to be a place where where women might be making those connections. Mm. But I would be very hesitant about asserting any kind of inherent way in which in which women care about this stuff more, because as soon as I did that, we would, between us, come up with a, a hundred um, exceptions to that uh, to that conclusion. No, I totally understand. I, I, and I see where you're coming from. Um, to just plumb the, the protest side of things a little bit more, obviously um, others who are taking direct action at the moment, the likes of Just Stop Oil, et cetera, uh, are well, stigmatised, to be, to be honest with you. Um, social pariahs, uh, whether it's in the right-wing media or within the political class. As someone who's, you know, as we've mentioned, taken direct action, um, been involved in the snowball campaign and other things, what's your view of the action that they're taking, whether it's, you know, blocking highways, attaching themselves to the top of bridges or any of the other slightly crazy things <laughs> that they get up to? Well, I think the first thing I would say on any conversation about Just Stop Oil is... Rather than immediately focusing on the tactics, let's focus on what the fuck has led them to be taking such <laughs> dramatic, scary action. You know, what is it that forces someone to feel that the only thing they can do is to climb a gantry on the M25? You know, that th that seems to me to be the first place to start our our inquiry, if you like. And I think, you know, if we wanted any evidence that the political system has failed, then surely it must be that that so many young people whose whose future is what's at stake are, are feeling that that is the only way that they can they can make their voices heard and try mm. to change things. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't sit in judgment on the actions and, and the tactics that they choose to take. I, I, I am in admiration of, of what they do. Um, in terms of what is the most effective strategic way of using peaceful direct action, to be very honest, I'm not even quite sure that we know. I mean, yeah. you know, it feels as if right now, we need to use all the tools at our disposal. I'm very aware that if you throw the soup at the painting, then a lot of the focus is on throwing the soup at the painting and not why you did it. Personally, for me, that's why my choice is to take direct action where there is a more um, explicit, visible linkage between the fracking site here and me sat outside it to try and stop the vehicles getting in. Mm. I find that that is an easier way to tell the story of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. 
Um, but I certainly wouldn't sit in judgment who've, to, on those people who've come to a different conclusion. There's also so much to be said. Why are we talking about it now, right? You know, why, yeah. why is everyone else talking about it? And whilst yeah. I'm sat there saying, yeah, the right-wing press, right-wing politicians are going ballistic about these people. Yeah. The fact remains, they are going ballistic about <laughs> exactly. them. <laughs> and, exactly. And it's a lot, I think the, the, the climate agenda has been put front and centre in a way that even five... 10 years ago it hasn't been because of these types of protests. Absolutely, and, and, and just cast your, I was going to say cast your mind back, but I mean, obviously neither of us were alive during the, um, <laughs> during the time of the suffragettes, but nonetheless, during that time, you know, there were plenty of people in the women's movement who were saying to the suffragettes, would you please stop setting fire to those post boxes? You know, it's turning people <laughs> off. And yet now you hear the people, the conservatives actually, even on the, on the anniversary of particular suffragette dates where they will, you know, lord all of this action that was taken um, mm. at the same time, you know, they and their former selves a few decades earlier would have been the first one wanting to lock them up I've no doubt. I think it speaks to the sort of in increasingly authoritarian tendency in this country right because if you in interrogate sort of some of the, the actions that the suffragettes took like literally attacking politicians right putting bricks through windows and through the windscreens of cars um, literal assault of politicians yes. right on train platforms and, which and I don't support. <laughs> thanks for clarifying for yeah. thanks for clarifying just even just as an MP you know, against the assault of MPs um, yeah. but that's, you know, it's very radical, um, pretty serious bits and pieces. And now when someone, I don't know, blocks a car yep. for half an hour and, you know, causes yep. a tailback. Walks slowly in the street. <gasps> and we go ballistic. Yeah. 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 And uh, for me, I think it really, I think it speaks to our political moment that sort of, yeah. I don't think you could even call it creeping authoritarianism. I think there is a, a very prevalent strain of authoritarianism in this country. Yeah. Maybe it's just because of the last 13 years of conservative government. I don't know. But something weird has happened, you know, when, yeah. when David Cameron comes back into government and people start, people sort of more on the left are trying to kind of, you know, take a sigh of relief and saying, thank goodness, you know, somebody from the centre left has come back and you're thinking, what? No. <laughs> just, just remember. Mm. But, but it does show how, how the political context and the goalposts have just changed now. We are so far to the right that even a David Cameron figure who was an absolute architect with the most ideological austerity you could imagine is mm. somehow not nearly as bad as the people he's now joining. The idea of describing him as a centrist, it blows my mind. I know. Genuinely that's blows my mind. 13 years, less than that, that's yeah. happened. Less than, it's an extraordinary distance yeah. to come, isn't yeah. it? A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Let's talk about your seat, Brighton Pavilion. Hmm. 2010, uh, you stood, you win. The country never had a Green MP before. How did you do it? A lot of bloody hard work yeah. for literally decades is how we did it. I mean, honestly, I, I, I did feel that it was standing on the shoulders of so many people who'd gone before, just building the party up and building them up. And why Brighton in particular, I think, was because 
we'd had a, a real critical mass of, of councillors there, which is what I hope we'll be able to replicate in Suffolk and in Bristol just now too. Um, but once you've got a situation where within the constituency, the majority of the local council seats are, in this case, green, then that credibility barrier, I think, really becomes something that you can you can vault over and say, look, we, we've, we've done it. There's a majority of Greens in this in this constituency. Just do the same thing at a general election and you'll get a Green. And it was something about Brighton where we just had that consistency of of a strong councillor presence that got built on time and time again. And I want to pay tribute to, to Keith Taylor, who was the most recent candidate who stood for the general election for the previous two times, who who had ratcheted up the the vote in a significant way as well. So it really was um, standing on the shoulders of people who'd done a hell of a lot of work before. Coming here for the first time, was it a lonely experience? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was it was extremely lonely. It was extremely disconcerting. I mean, I, I mean, frankly, I still get lost in this place, but, um, <laughs> but in the early days, I was really getting lost. Mm. And just, it's not only that people... Um, it's not only that there are there are rules that you don't know about. It's that it feels like people have a particular interest in not telling you about the rules until you've broken them. Just really silly things. Like I remember there was an MP, I don't even remember who it was now, a Conservative MP, who I had said hello to one time and then I saw him again and I, and I just uh, instinctively went in to, to shake his hand, you know. And he leapt about 20 feet into the air and said, we don't shake hands in this house. And I just said, yeah, sure, fine. You know, <laughs> why? And why is that one of the worst things I could possibly have done? And, Mortally offended oh, him. Oh, my goodness. But I mean, that's just one small example of the madness of this place. Um, you, you know, I came from the European Parliament, which at the time I, I never thought to be this, this beacon of common sense. But my <laughs> God, compared to this place, you know, just, just the stupid things we do. The thing that makes me most angry, I suppose, is, is the queuing up to vote. You know, six votes in the European Parliament would take you, you know, about a, a minute because there's a few seconds for each vote electronically. You know, here it takes you about an hour and a half to get through six votes. It's just madness as you queue up and file through the I lobby and the no lobby. Um, and and then, you, you know, you have people who are still trying to remonstrate with their whips saying, I don't, I'm not sure if I do want to vote this way. And then the whip pushes you into that lobby. And once you've gone over the threshold, you're not allowed to reverse out. So then you have the situation where sometimes when people have voted one way, but they don't really want to have their names recorded as having voted that way. They hide in the toilets. So after every vote, you've literally got people going through those those voting lobbies, checking there's no one hiding in the toilets. I mean, this is this is the mother of all parliaments, folks. This is this is your democratic system. It is bonkers. It sounds like a school. But, but I thought it was a school to begin with. But then I thought, actually, with a school, with the rules, they are trying to get you to follow the rules. Whereas here, mm. they're just changing the rules. They're not telling you what they are. I, I, yeah, it's the hiding in the toilets thing is what does it for me. But the kind of <laughs> the arcane, like you're saying, right, these traditions or unspoken rules that, oh, you know, no person in the sixth form is allowed to go in yeah. X place during Thursday afternoons because exactly. of a civil war, whatever. Yes, and it feels like a continuation of that. And is it a cliche to describe this as like an old boys club is, is, what, is what I'm getting at? Because the phrase gets used a lot. You ha you've been here for 13 years now. Yeah. What do you make of that? No, I, I, I think it, it, it is an old boys club, but I think it's more dangerous than that because that risks just sounding slightly quaint and Harry Potterish. Um, and it's not quaint. It's, it's really dangerous, um, I think, in terms of 
um, who gets attracted to come to this place and who feels that they can be at home in this place. Um, it, it, the, some of the traditions are actually deeply anti-democratic, I would say, because you know the example I gave about the amount of time it takes to vote, that's not only just a criminal waste of time, <laughs> but it just means as well that not all amendments that get tabled that are perfectly in order and should be taken, not all of them can be taken because we'd be here till Christmas. So then the Speaker has a vast amount of power, really, which is totally unaccountable, where he can choose which amendments get put to the vote. Yep. I mean, I was just gobsmacked by that when I first came here. My first amendment that I put down was about Trident um, nuclear submarine program. Basically, there was going to be a, a review of the defence uh, program and they were going to exclude our nuclear weapons, which seemed to me quite a large oversight. So my <laughs> amendment was saying, excuse me, please, could we include Trident in this? And we got to where I thought we were going to vote on my amendment. I was incredibly excited, you know, and, and then he just bounced over it and, and went to the next amendment. And I was still trying to put my hand up and saying, I'm sorry, I think you've made a mistake. And then people, you know, quietly pointed out that he just hadn't selected it. And I just- That's what he does. That's what he does. Burko um, did that, didn't he, during Brexit to quite an extreme extent to uh, alienating a lot of people's. He did. I mean, on, on that on that occasion, I was less angry because it worked in my favour. But the principle, no, I'm just being honest. Then. No, it wasn't. But I, I'm just being honest. Yeah. You know, that, but, but the principle was still wrong then. Mm. Whichever, whichever group it kind of benefits, it is wrong that is done in just such an unaccountable way. Trident, obviously aging um there was a there's a bbc story recently i think about one of the subs leaking or something they had to go back to base i mean they're creaking i think is, yeah. is a fair way of describing I think it so. there will be as there always are but with increasing intensity discussions about refreshing renewing our nuclear weapons program um to your mind what are the strongest arguments against doing that one thing, certainly one of the strongest arguments would be what possible moral authority do we have to lecture a country like Iran about not seeking to acquire nuclear weapons when we not only have them, but we are upgrading them? You know, it takes us back to that debate as well, doesn't it, about, about international law. We've signed the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has two components. The government's always fond of citing the component that says that countries that don't have nuclear weapons should not seek to acquire them. But there's the other prior point in that treaty that says that those countries that do have them should seek to, uh, to, 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 to get rid of them over time. And, and we're not doing that. Simple as that, full stop. Cost? Cost, safety, I mean, massive cost and, and real safety concerns. And uh, I do still worry that this is, there are so many other things on the, on the agenda, aren't there? And it just crowds other things out. It, it's, it's extremely interesting just what, what a narrow bandwidth that feels that both the media and, and politicians have, just like, you know, the awful events um, in Israel and Gaza have pushed Ukraine out of the out of the out mm. of the headlines and, and climate change has somewhat pushed nuclear weapons out of the headlines. And yet all of those things are still real and awful and terrible. Mm. And we need to have a way of being able to focus on more than one thing at a one at, at a time. It's a really valid point, particularly in the context of Ukraine, right, where I think Putin has essentially recognized that the, the, the war goes on as long as uh, Zelensky supported by the West, right? Yeah. And so he uh, tried initially with the energy price squeeze, didn't break the resolve. Yeah. But now as the war in the Middle East escalates and possibly the re-election, uh, yeah, well, technically a re-election of Donald Trump, if that happens, you know, within a yeah. day, that support evaporates. Yeah. And all of a sudden that war, the context of that war changes. Yeah. Um, it's a very astute point you're making. Let's talk a little bit about um, Israel and Gaza then. In the first couple of months, um, of you becoming an MP, you expressed support for campaigners who had caused 
£180,000 worth of damage to an arms factory on the grounds that the company supplied components used by the Israeli military, notably in assaults on Gaza. Obviously, the assaults on Gaza at the moment have escalated in quite a dramatic way. Do you adore, endorse, and seeing as we've been having this conversation about direct action, that type of direct action today? So do I endorse people who are trying to stop military components going to, to Israel? Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, to the extent that um, some of those um, weapons and, and components and so forth are being used to break international law. And, and, and so I suppose we could have an argument. Uh, I, th I think when I say yes, the reason that we were taking action against that factory at that time was because Israel was using them in particular in the West Bank. So obviously there wasn't a, a war going on in quite the same way as there is now. Um, it was for the occupation and, and, and a lot of violence in, in, in the West Bank and, and these um, components were being used for that. And so I think that was clearly against international law. If, if you're asking me whether or not there should ever be any arms sales and is it fair game to, um, to try to stop any export of, of, of arms, I, that isn't a position I, I would take because I'm not saying that I'm not a pacifist. Hmm. I, I should like to be, but I'm I'm not, um, and therefore um, there may be cases where it is leg legitimate for weapons to be made and sold. But at the moment, it feels as if um, where they're being used to break international law, it is reasonable to try to stop that. Can we explore a little bit what? you said there about pacifism because I think I'm I think I'm in the same space as you right the, on point of principle you want to sit there and say I you know I oppose violence I oppose wars and wherever possible I don't want one to happen we were just talking about Russia and UK yeah right it's all very well and good being a pacifist yeah. as the T-72s roll towards Kiev exactly I mean that for, for me Ukraine was 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 a real challenge to think that through um and, and I think it was it was that question about does Ukraine have the right to the to the kind of self-defense that that it was trying to um, muster and it and it it felt to me that yes they do have the right to that self-defense and, and therefore I'm trying to be consistent um, uh, acro across the board so so yes it was a challenge to me because I, I think perhaps until that time I had been in a slightly more pacifist state I, I it, it feels to me as if as if so many um, of the political problems of today just don't have military solutions. Mm. But having said that, as you say, when the tanks are, are rolling into Kyiv, then I think you probably want a, a military solution at that point <laughs> yeah. in, in the short term. I think, it, yeah, totally. I think it's, it's one of those things where, where it's possible to say that you can still be dovish about most things, but there are such things peculiarly as just wars, right? They're, they're, Self-defense being Self -defense, probably primarily is, is the is the is the thing for me. That, mm. That's that's the line. Um, just to return to Israel Gaza, you voted for the SNP's pro ceasefire motion uh, in Parliament. Why was that the right call in your mind? I think it was the right call. I mean, first of all, I will say it because it has to be said, which is that of course the actions of Hamas in Israel were unspeakably awful. They were war crimes. And and nothing about saying that you want a ceasefire is in any way um, to to weaken or to downplay the significance of, of that awful act of terror. But it's revealing that we have to have make that statement well, right, before we talk about this. It almost feels that, that that's, yeah, 
I mean, it, ne it needs to be said. There is anti-Semitism out there, and, yeah, and I want does. to say it. Um, but, <laughs> and uh, at the same time, it is also true that the collective punishment of, of, of you know, so many thousands of people in, in, in Gaza can't, can't possibly be justified in any way, I don't think. Um, and it feels to me as if the, the war aims of Israel just can't be reconciled with international law in the sense that trying to destroy Hamas once and for all, I think kind of misreads what Hamas is because Hamas is a, an ideology as well as a group of people. Um, and as we know from our experience with the war on terror, you, you can't have a war on, a, on an abstract concept. Mm. Um, and I think those people are probably right when they say that the more civilian deaths that happen in, in Gaza, the more likely it is that there are going to be more people who are going to be feeling more desperate and as if, you know, the only way to, to, to survive is, is to pick up arms themselves. So I cannot see a, a, a military solution um, to the situation in, in Gaza, which is why I think we, we absolutely need that, that bilateral ceasefire. You've clearly thought about this a lot, right? Just listening to you talk about it now, you can hear the, the nuance in the way you're talking about it and also the, the emotional sensitivity about the way that you're talking about it. So others didn't vote in the way that you did. Um, the Labour Party whipped against it, right? Do you begrudge people who voted differently to you? Do you view this as an issue of conscience that people can come to a different conclusion and that it's not, you know, um, I was going to say life and death, but that's, an, you know, it's a very insensitive way of phrasing mm. it. But you, you understand what I'm trying to say. I, I do. And, and I, 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 I do respect the fact that people can come to a different conclusion. I mean, the, the Labour Party in particular there, I mean, I disagree with them. Um, but I don't think those people who voted for Labour's position, which was around the um, humanitarian pauses, I, I don't think they were any less concerned about the, the massive loss of life that was happening in Gaza. I, I really don't think that's a, a politically tenable position to, to take. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I think they were probably being whipped quite heavily by, by Keir Starmer, who for his own purposes, you know, wanted to be able to be in lockstep with the government on this and didn't want to uh, evince any kind of um, gap where, where he could be attacked by, by the right wing. But ha having said that, what, what made me, one of the things that, that, that persuaded me was, was to listen to the NGOs. I worked for Oxfam for 10 years before I was in the European Parliament. I have a huge respect for the work they do. Um, and, and they and many other NGOs were so clear that these humanitarian pauses were never going to be enough, even if you put aside the fact that they're going to come to an end and then the very people you've been trying to feed are going to be in the front line of the bombs again. But, but even trying to get aid to them in such short time periods where sometimes the roads have all but disappeared and so you're going to need to be able to just literally make the road passable before you can get a, a vehicle down it to get the aid from one place to another. It just became so clear that practically speaking that these humanitarian pauses just weren't going to work. Yeah, that's such an important point you're making there. I remember I was um, on GB News once having a conversation about aid to Yemen and the host said, where's the audit trail? How do we know where this aid's going? <laughs> and you're sat there thinking, <laughs> one third of the people in Yemen yes. are... So hand to mouth, they're literally eating leaves and bark, right, to try and stay alive. Yeah. You going up, say them, where's the receipt for my fucking bag yeah. of rice? Like, yeah. what are you on about? What yeah. world do you live in? Um, yeah. 
let's final question on the politics list and then I want to turn to sort of what where you'll be heading after you leave parliament you mentioned Keir Starmer uh, being in lockstep with the government on this issue it's not the only issue on which he's certainly not <laughs> in lockstep with the government on you know uh, that's increasingly now extending to the economy as well as issues of foreign policy and national security um, I just I sort of invite your perspective on that and on him as our likely next prime minister but also in the role as leader of the opposition and um, whether or not you can fulfill that constitutional role effectively if you're not prepared to oppose mm. on quite significant matters of, of governmental policy. I think particularly when you're not prepared to oppose when it's perfectly clear that your own traditions and, and, and values would lead one to thinking that opposition was the right thing to do. So I'm not saying that people should oppose simply because, you know, that that's, that's in their title. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think for example, when it comes to the economy, um, hearing Rachel Reeves and, and Keir Starmer just simply parroting that there is no money without even beginning to have a conversation about about all the places where there is actually plenty of money if we chose to uh, uh, to focus on it, uh, not least places like wealth taxes. You, you know, to, for for that to be so far off the agenda as to be, you know, somehow. I, words fail me in a way. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the conversations about the Overton window. I mean, the Overton window is, is totally slammed shut mm. and there's no space for anything. It feels like, you know, to be talking about wealth taxes is somehow massively radical when countries like Switzerland and Norway and Spain, you know, all have wealth taxes, have done for a very long time and it's not, you know, brought the sky down. So it is deeply frustrating when you see the Labour Party under Keir Starmer basically saying that there is no going to be no investment in public services because we can't afford it. Yes, we can afford it. Let's have the debate about whether we want to ask people who've got more money and who've done very well out of the current system, would we like them to contribute a bit more into the pot? But we can't even have that debate. That Even that debate is off limits. And that's why I get so angry about the way in which uh, Starmer is leading the Labour Party because suddenly these very basic conversations just can't happen. Um, you know, on social issues, we've already had uh, Keir Starmer saying that he's not even going to reverse the obscene two-child benefit limit. I mean, there's not even a massive bill that goes alongside that. You know, it, mm. it just feels like that that is just simply ideological and that he, he he's so terrified of of standing up to the government that, that he doesn't even want to have the, the battle. Um, on green issues, yes, there's question marks as to how quickly that 28 billion could have been spent. But now even that figure is 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 wavering a lot. Um, Rosebank, Rosebank is the biggest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea. And Kistarmer has said that he would not oppose it because the government has already gone ahead and, and given a green light. If Kistarmer had said earlier on, were I to be prime minister, this would not happen under my leadership. He could have sent a really strong message to Equinor, the Norwegian oil company that is now going to be exploiting that, that oil field. And he could have stopped it. And he, and he chose not to do that. And that Rosebank oil field is going to produce the same amount of emissions as the 28 least developed countries put together. You, you know, so so I, do feel, I do feel massively angry that we don't have an opposition worthy of the name. I do feel that that argues for why there needs to be more Greens in the next parliament so that we can make brave make labor braver and bolder and better so that they they do do some of this stuff and i think as well frankly he's got to be a bit careful because he he has to inspire people just to get out to vote you know there's one thing about you know trying to peel off some some 
people in the Red Wall or, or, or wherever else to, to try to support him. But if he's not careful, there are places where his left flank could go, either to the Green Party or, frankly, just staying at home. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think there's more to worry about than perhaps he, he imagines. You mentioned Rosebank there, and I'm trying to fold two questions into one because we're running out of time. But you're And you're leaving Parliament, you're leaving politics. So I, I guess what I'm asking is, one, do you think you leave behind a more environmentally friendly Parliament than the one that you arrived in? And two, the sort of legacy of your time here. Because until very recently, I would have said that actually we were moving in the right direction, right? You know, um, no fracking, Rosebank not happening, the ban on petrol cars, right, by 2030, and the other net zero measures which Rishi Sunak has now walked back from. Mm. So when it is, does cut t- come to time for you to leave here, What's what's your perspective on that and, and the sort of the green pledges, the green assessment mm. of this parliament? It's really tough, actually, because um, on one hand, you know, some some positive things have certainly happened. I mean, I could never have imagined perhaps that there would have been a, a parliamentary declaration of a climate emergency, for example, um, or indeed that we would get to that fracking ban um, or as it wasn't uh, until just recently that we would have definitely not had any more coal mines. But the last few years have really begun to unpick some of that stuff. And to see Rishi Sunak really be willing to call into question the consensus that there had been, more or less, about the importance of tackling the climate uh, crisis. I mean, of course, there were big debates about how fast you were going to do it and, and so forth. But but for him to really just put that into play as um, just as a, a, a wedge issue, as a way of trying to score points over Keir Starmer, the fact that he would really risk what has been a fairly strong position across both main parties, um, I, I just think is the height of recklessness. And that goes before we talk about the 100 uh, oil and gas licenses in the North Sea, the new the new coal mine in Cumbria, the walking back, as you say, from from other commitments. I mean, I think, I think since 2010, Overall, there's a better story to tell than a, than, a, than a bad one, but that's almost in spite of the politics, not because of it. You know, it's because renewable energies and energy efficiency have, have come down in price. Um, fossil fuels have gone up in price or stayed the same. And so in a sense, the economic case is, is making its own case. Plus, nature is doing a very good job of reminding people just what climate change means, means in terms of increasingly frequent so-called freak weather events that, that seem to be happening with ever greater... Um, frequencies. So so it is quite difficult to, to, to do that summing up. I mean, what I can say is that I do think there have been things on the political agenda here that wouldn't have been if I if I hadn't been here really pushing for them to be. So you know, we haven't got into the big debates about, about economic growth and, and some of the issues around what kind of economy is, is consistent with, with staying below 1.5 degrees of warming. Um, my own constituency of Bright, when I was first elected, had the very unwanted title of the drugs death capital of, of the UK. And, and, and I did a lot of work around drugs policy and, and really pushed um, some way, I think, in terms of, of, of getting a greater understanding that drug addiction is better treated as a, as a health issue rather than a criminal one. So I think there are places where you can say, yes, I've, I've changed the subject that we've been discussing and to some extent tried to change some of the style with which we've been discussing it. And that comes down to some of the work around progressive alliances or around even just around about how we do business in this place. Um, but changing the system, that's that's the big one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is definitely still unfinished business. 
what will you do next? I genuinely don't know. Um, I, I honestly, this job takes seventy or eighty hours a week um, as, as the sole as the sole representative of my party, um, as the as the front, first front bench spokesperson on everything. <laughs> um, and I'm certainly discovering that the constituency work is 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 definitely taking more time now. And I think many MPs would say the same. It feels as if because so many public services have been cut back through budget cuts and so many community groups don't get financing anymore. It feels like in many communities, the MP's office is about the only place left standing where people can come to try to get support. So I've really seen that expand hugely. So if I'm doing that, you know, probably two days a week and then all of this other stuff too, what I want to do is to find a way to focus on climate and nature. And even if as I say that, I realize it sounds ridiculous because nature and climate are in themselves <laughs> massive but i should love to find a way to to focus on that and not have to focus on people's bins and on 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 you know all of the other things that Piles. are yeah that are important but um but not what gets me out of bed in the morning caroline lucas thank you so much for taking the time um to be interviewed and thank you for your contribution to our democracy as well it's been a pleasure thank you very much that's very kind selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.